Hey there, and welcome to the Agentic Voice podcast. My name is Kristen Ruiz, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Geneva Main. Today, we're going to be exploring how stress manifests itself in the body. We're going to look at laryngoresponders and how mindfulness may play a role in helping voice users. And let me introduce our very special guest today. We have with us uh, Diana Rose Becker. And Diana Rose Becker holds a Master of Science in Speech-Language Pathology from the University of Pittsburgh as well as a dual Bachelor of Music degrees in classical vocal performance and music education from the Eastman School of Music. She completed her clinical fellowship at the Emory Voice Center, and she helped establish, along with Dr. Aisha Haroon, the Emory Voice Center's first multidisciplinary satellite clinic at Emory Decatur Hospital. Ms. Becker works with both professional singers and novice voice users, and she also has extensive experience as a professional singer throughout the U.S. and internationally. So, Diana, welcome. We are so thrilled to have you here today. It is really a joy. We can't wait to chat with you. Yay, thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So we usually start out with our first segment, which is what's new, what's good. Just to warm things up. I'm actually in Nevada, guys. <laughs> I'm with my sister and like we decided to do hiking. I just came back from a three and a half hour hike. Feels so refreshed, but tired. And um, I'm realizing now that I'm getting older, that's harder. And I might need like those, you know, those walking. <laughs> I love the sticks. I have those, and I think that it is a boon to any hiker, and not just for old people. Okay. Yes. All right. So here's sticks. me thinking. Yes. Here's me thinking that you know it's like I need the assistance, but seriously, because we did a couple of really challenging hikes. Well, I shouldn't say challenging; they were moderate, and you had to like step down from rocks. And I'm like, whoa, this step is like high. Like a stick would have helped me. Um, so next time I think I need to start investing in hiking stuff like camelbacks and I will say that I am a newer hiker my I am sort of like a secondhand hiker I'm loving it but it's very new to me my fiance hikes a ton and he like really knows what he's doing and before we did one of our bigger hikes I got walking sticks and I was so embarrassed to use them but my big fear is I get very uncomfortable when I'm going on like any sort of a downhill slope. Yes. I like need to hold things sometimes. I mean, we've had moments where he's like way ahead of me because I'm just standing there like, I don't want to fall. I don't want to fall. Right. And they help me and it just makes things better. So please. Right. Oh my goodness. Yes. I got them when I went to Utah. I went to Moab and we did some hiking over there. Oh, that's right. But the thing is, it didn't even occur to me to be embarrassed about them because I wasn't a hiker. So I was like, well, let me get the props. So I got my, I got the, the pleated hiking Step accoutrements. Yes. And I got the, the bag that has the water and I got I my call hiking. it the costume, but yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, theater backgrounds. Right. And then the minute I put it all on, I'm like, I am now hiker and I had a blast with it. See, this well, is why you need to hang out with performers. You're right. You have to get the trappings. Yes. Or like, um, my, uh, we'll talk about her later, but my boss slash friend Amanda Gillespie will say like you need you to look like an REI model and once you look like an REI model you can kind of do anything outside <laughs> uh, the power of identity yeah. <laughs> they talk about those alter egos you know which That's by awesome. the way you guys are well on your way to like a spin-off hiking podcast <laughs> oh my gosh Geneva. Totally think about this 
Oh my gosh. And I can, I can see us too. We should, we should record something on the way. <laughs> talk and walk. Oh my gosh. I love that. So what's new with you, Diana? What's new? What's good? Okay. I will give two, if that's all right. I'll give one sure. that's a little more like work-related and a little more like life-related. Um, what's new, and you mentioned it before, Kristen, the Emory Voice Center Multidisciplinary Clinic Indicator we just had a major renovation and expansion and that space opened like in the last week or two. And it's really exciting because we have now like a little SLP room. It's really got beautiful windows and it's, we get to make it our own and have like a little home in this new space that's just for voice. And what I really love about it is that there are a lot of folks who can't get to Emory or Emory Midtown. Travel is difficult. Parking is difficult. And we're really getting able to see people who it feel, it's not that far away, but it feels like it's a whole different population who felt that they didn't really have access to Midtown. And it's really, really nice to be there and, and to be building that. So that's super exciting on the work front. Nice. And then... Other, what's good, this was like oh, two weeks ago, but I have to share it because it was the best thing of the year. Last week, I went to the Ragtime 25th Reunion concert. And yes. It's probably the thing I'll talk about that's good for the next, you know, <laughs> year and two months when I get married. It's going to be the best thing until then. It was just the most exciting, most like heart filling, soul filling night of revisiting something that is the reason why I do what I do and why I feel about the world the way that I feel about the world. And of course, like my speech pathology brain was on as I was listening to these people and I was like, oh, they sound X, Y, and Z after not singing this for 25 years, thinking about all of that, but also just like little seventh grade Diana was just like bursting and it, it just <laughs> powered me for two weeks already. That's I mean, awesome. a little Audra, a little oh Brian, that goes a long way. <laughs> and you know what? It, it has kicked my butt a little bit because I'm like, I better get better at consistent practice if I ever want to say that I can sing a role 25 years after I sang it. And so it really has fired me up and I've been looking at my own practice a little bit different. It's just yeah. something to inspire you. It's always exciting. Nice. Oh, I love that. That's and I awesome. love, you know, for those of us in, in uh, whether it's the clinical side or the practitioner side, it's just so easy to get, um, to give all of our energy to the service. But we also have a creative side that must be expressed, right? Because we're creatives, we're, we're artists first. So keep nurturing that, that's awesome. That's great. Yay. And what uh, about you, Kristen? What's new? What's good? Um, there's a couple things. First of all, like I, I was dealing with a little bit of health things, just got got something that was holding on. So just happy to have the return of energy, you know, some some lingering little things, but it's so good. You realize, wow, energy is such a big deal. So I'm kind of celebrating that. Um, but also um, in our in my studio, every month we kind of in our side conversations, we have some group coaching calls and things like that. We always have like a monthly theme. And this month's theme is kind of is it's called simplify <laughs> like and looking at where we're like overworking over complicating things where are we making things harder than it needs to be and my team and it we created this for our singers because this is what we were seeing happen and so um as we're working on it with our clients 
it, you know, it's hard not to see how, where it transfers into our own life. So for me, kind of just reframing things, anything from the mundane to the projects that are moving ahead, it's like, how can this be easier? How can this be more playful? How can, how can I bring lightness to this work? And it's, it's just bringing a joy back that I, I just really, I really thrive on. So that's kind of what I'm celebrating, just the power of simplifying, you know, yes. <laughs> it doesn't need to be that hard, you know, right. that was the original um, playful reason, you know, that the, the purpose behind it. And so returning to that has been, been very good and right for me. Awesome. So we're going to move right into experience, strength, and hope. So Diana, can you share with us a little bit about your own journey and how you came to be an SLP and a clinical researcher? Sure. I don't want to reiterate too much that you've already shared in that really nice intro, but um, I went to, uh, well, let's go all the way back. I just oh, grew up always saying I wanted to be an actress. I, I just have always wanted to sing, always wanted to be on stage, be in costumes. Um, and when I was going to uh, applying, auditioning for undergraduate school, I was very hesitant to apply as a performance major. I was really like had imposter syndrome and all of that. I was like, I'll never do this. But I also really wanted to teach and I love teaching. So um, the very last minute I kind of got up the nerve and was like, I'm going to apply to Eastman and like, let's just see what happens. And I got in and I was a double major there and just learned so much there, but even still for a while, I was like, I'm going to be a teacher and I love teaching and that's going to be awesome. And then at, um, right before I started, I, I was going to grad school for a master's in vocal performance. And then I was like, I'm just going to see what it's like to audition. So my family's from New York. I moved back to New York. I figured like, I have to just give it a, a go. And I booked my first audition in New York city and was like, okay, this will tell me to just keep going for a little while. And that little while was a little bit longer than I thought it was going to be. And then about 10 years later, after, you know, living the real New York city, you know, highs, highs of highs and lows of lows of like auditioning five days a week, working seven days a week, putting everything into it. And also like, that's fun in its way when you're in that moment. And about 10 years later, I was like, looked around and realized I don't own a bed. I don't own furniture. I kind of want a little bit of a different lifestyle. And so th that was like one of the big turning moments. And I also went to see, a. I remember I went to go see a show, which is like my greatest love of all things is to go watch a musical. And I sat there the whole show and I realized that I was like snarky and my mind was just like a constant, like, I don't like this and I don't like that. And they did that. And like, and just like not kind and not enjoying it. And I left and I realized like the one thing I love more than anything in the world is going to see and enjoying musical theater. And if I can't do that, then something has to change. Like it can't be my work if it's making it not be my life in that way. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about what else can I do? You know, I had this education degree. I was certified. I had been teaching um, in a part-time capacity and I, it really came down to, I thought, you know, I don't know that I want my next career to also feel like it is 
judged, like the, the success of it is judged on whether my students get roles or my students win awards or whatever it is that we measure things against. And I thought there's so much more about using your voice and so many other ways to use someone's voice and different sticks against which to measure this that are just more important to the world than that. And I just needed a break from that. So I did a lot of like exploring and I, I met with lots of folks who were in New York City at the time. I went to some workshops. I think I went to Voice Foundation for the first time. And I um, felt that speech pathology kind of merged like the education side of my life, the performing side of my life, what I had invested so much time in learning about the voice, but it made it not about me in a way that I needed. And I made it about other people and their goals and what they found to be success or not in a way that was really helpful to me. So now I'm back at the place where like, I can just fangirl about musical theater and sing what I want to sing and go see what I want to see. And, you know, and it, it feels like it's back into like my lifeblood and not just my work anymore. Um, and how I got into research, I, I got so many recommendations and, and almost like nudges to go to University of Pittsburgh for my master's. And when I got there and I started to learn more about the UPMC Voice Center and the wonderful people who are there or, and were working there at the time, I thought um, there's no way I could be here if I don't try and get involved in the research and try and learn from, you know, at, it was Dr. Amanda Gillespie, Jackie Gartner-Schmidt, Leia Hallou, just, you know, an embarrassment of riches and so I got involved there and have kept going oh that's great. that is so amazing and you just said so many things that I, I really want to try and touch on you talked about the imposter syndrome um even becoming um a performer and going to school to become a performer and you somehow talked yourself through it and said I'm going to give myself a chance and what do you think did that like was there an external source that said you can do it? Or is there a self-talk thing that you did? Like, how did you get come to the place where you were like, I'm going to give myself a chance? Oh my gosh. I don't know the foolishness of <laughs> being young. I don't know. I think it's just, you know, I think that that's always in me. I mean, let's look at this. I emailed you last week and was like, I don't think I can do this. I don't know how I can be on your podcast. I have nothing to say and I'm going to quit. Like, it's a little bit there that's, you know, insider knowledge, but there's ultimately like when you're, when you have this drive to do something, I sort of feel like I can't not know what would happen. Right. I can't not see it. I can't not try. And when you're in those moments, I mean, they far surpass the discomfort of ramping up for them. That's really interesting because if you did with me, what you did when you were younger, what I saw you do was you had this kind of negative self-talk where you're talking yourself out of it, saying that I can't do it, but you, re you still reached out. You still reached out for that social support, you know, and got that assurance. And I, I keep, you know, want to emphasize to people how important social support is. And you spoke about that in your story with um, Jackie and Amanda and Leah, people who kind of poured into you and probably encouraged you and you know, where mentors or even just role models, you were like, if they can do it, I can do it. So social support is so important in terms of keeping you going, and especially when it's hard or when it feels hard, or you feel like you can't do it. Yeah. I don't know. That's awesome. Yeah, you've been able to do some amazing things. 
Yeah. The other thing that occurred to me when you were talking about, like, it's so easy to be our own gatekeeper. You know, there's so many gatekeepers in the world and then we're doing it to ourselves. And the other thing that, you know, by reaching out and, and going anyway, it's like a reframe. Like when, when we say like, what if I can't do it? I'm like, well, what if I can, <laughs> you know, right. those reframes are so powerful, you know? Yeah. I know that you recently published a paper on mindfulness meditation and voice. So can you talk to us a little bit about like, what are some of your thoughts on mindfulness and voice? What did you find? But also beyond what you just found in in the paper, because we can read that and find that out. But like, what are your thoughts on it? You know, after going through that? Sure. So I will say people ask, like, where did that where did that study come from? Um, it was a little bit of a, you know, having my, my other, other paper, which was my master's thesis, which was about um, trauma in the voice and stress in the voice. And I'm really interested in that interplay between like who we are and then what we go through and how that affects the voice. Mm-hmm. There was like that little bit of, of insight into it. But then someone who was at the voice center already, so I was going to Emory Voice Center for my clinical fellowship and we are lucky enough to have the chance to do a study while we're there. And I connected with Carissa Myra, who's there and does a lot of mindfulness with the voice. And she really wanted to do a study. And quite frankly, I at first was like, I get how this is related to what I've been doing. Like, I I totally get that. But like, I am a super jaded New Yorker and was like, meditation, what the heck is that? Like, what what is that going to do for me? How is like sitting still and like, thinking or not thinking. And like, how is that going to help me get anywhere? Right. I've lived this life of just like nonstop and go, go, go and do, do, do. And so it was really foreign to me. And I was like, quite frankly, it felt a little woo woo. And I was a little bit like, nah, I'm I'm not sure how I feel about this. I want to jump onto that for a second, if you don't mind, because I think that is a really important point. Um, you know, especially when you're young and you're grinding to get to where you want to get, Mm -hmm. or you're in a um, high cost of living area and you're like, I need to live, I need to pay. Sometimes it's hard to think about how important stopping and pausing is. So that's a really, you know, underline that, you know, dot cross it, highlight it, because we forget how important it is to just slow down. One of the things they talk about in speech pathology in general, but especially when you're working with people who are disabled or children is the support system around that child needs to slow way down. And I think when it comes to nurturing and caring for yourself, that's important too. slow way down. And it's not easy when you're used to, you know, slaying the dragon, you know, yeah. the seal teams the, like where, where they, what do they say? Uh, uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. <laughs> Huh. I've heard this. You yeah. have all these little like nuggets of where do you get all these things from? <laughs> I read random things and once in a while they're they they're relevant. Oh Kristen is good for this. Kristen, we need to start putting out t-shirts with your little things. Yes. <laughs> I'll get bumper stickers going. Sure. I sometimes think of this, and I'm sure a lot of people will have like a comment about how this isn't really the right characterization of it. But one thing I think of is haste makes waste. Yes. <laughs> And I sometimes will like find ways to say that to, you know, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but sometimes I'll say to patients like, okay, you can just keep saying, ah, 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 ah. But if you're not, you don't have a goal. You're you're not even listening or noticing what's going on. Yeah. You got through 10 repetitions really fast, but like you went nowhere. 
you went nowhere. You already know how to say the vowel ah. Like, so that's that's sort of how I think. Every about voice it. teacher just nodded. <laughs> Like, yep, we know what that looks like. But it's also, and and I will relate to people. I'll say it's like, what is more, you know, maybe this will resonate with some people, but what is more frustrating than when they're like, oh, put on a metronome and practice your scales slowly before you try and rush through it, but they're sloppy, sloppy as anything. And like, you know, there's something about being present, recognizing what's going on. You cannot recreate or you know hit the same target if you don't even know what happened the first time like yeah so so hence mindfulness right because yeah. stress you know you have this fire under you to slay the dragon and, and you're not being mindful so yeah talk a little bit more about that um in the study yeah so in the study what we did was we recognizing there were certain limitations of, I was there for one year. There was a further limitation that we didn't realize then that six months on COVID would hit and we would have to stop collecting data and all these other changes would happen. But we wanted to look at something that was a sort of like bite-sized. And I'm really interested in how mindfulness as a part of voice therapy or looking at individuals who have a greater degree of mindfulness, there are different ways to measure it, you know, whatever that means to you, how it, how they do in voice therapy versus those who don't have that. But in this bite-sized moment, we were like, you know, you look everywhere, maybe not as much anymore, but I felt like I was seeing like voice podcasts and voice Instagram accounts and all these things. It was like, if you meditate before you sing, you'll sing better. Or these like big broad strokes of like, it's really good for the singer to do yoga, or it's really good for the singer to do meditation. And I'm like, I love that, but can you tell me why or how, or what's really going on there? So we had these different ideas and we were like, well, let's look at if someone like, let's look at the most basic, this makes this happen. If somebody meditates or has a period of mindfulness, does it change their voice? Does it change how they feel about their voice? Does it change their insight into their voice? You know, I, I think the way we framed it was their experience of, or the sound of, or function of their voice. So we looked at um, people who came to our clinic and had a diagnosis such as muscle tension dysphonia or benign vocal fold lesions, maybe phonotraumatic in nature, people who we would put into voice therapy and we expected voice therapy to be beneficial for them. They were also probably deemed stimulable by us looking at, you know, can they do any of these voice therapy techniques and notice a change in their voice? And then before they went into therapy, we had them sit for a few minutes. We, we took voice recordings. Um, which is our typical um, diagnostic work. And then we had them spend, it was 11 and a half minutes of a headspace mindfulness meditation uh, video. And they listened, all listened to the same thing. And then we had them record the same things after. And we an analyzed them for acoustics and aerodynamics. We also had like respiratory bands. We were looking at chest excursion and abdominal excursion and all these other things. We looked at um, their state stress levels and how that changed. We mm -hmm. asked them, did you feel a change in your voice before the meditation and after the meditation? And what we found was in this moment, there was no measurable objective I mean, there were little things, but nothing that was super significant and nothing that I feel like really transfers into life, right? Maybe they're 
uh, was a little, had a lower noise in the sound signal, but like, is that going to do much for them outside, you know, outside of a, a lab? But what we noticed was that they all, not all, but many people were like, you know what? I felt myself breathing. I felt tension go down in my throat. I felt like I could take my time with it. And they were all having this different experience. And, you know, there were some that I listened to and I was analyzing them and I was like, I hear a really big difference. And maybe, you know, that gets washed out in um, group analysis in a way. But for some people, I could play back and they're hearing, oh, wow, there is a difference in my voice. If I just kind of like slow down, I try something else that gives us the stimulability for behavioral voice therapy, gives them a buy-in into, wow, my voice doesn't have to sound exactly like this all the time. I can do things to change it. Um, and so what, what's, I think the big take home from this is in this moment, no, you can't have someone listen to a meditation or have a period of mindfulness and like their voice disorder goes away. Let's think about it, especially something like muscle tension dysphonia, which, you know, uh, a vocal fold anatomy is fine. Everything looks good, but the way you're using your voice is getting you into trouble, whatever that is for you. It's hard to undo that. If we could just give them a 10 minute mindfulness, I probably wouldn't have a job, but also like that just seems that, that just seems like a very far reaching goal, but they have a different experience of their voice. They're looking at the, or they're able to feel things differently. They're able to hear things differently. It's really, really worthwhile for anybody who's going to enter into voice therapy. So what I hear, because as someone who went through the process of getting therapy for uh, muscle tension dysphonia myself, um, I think about that time in my life and how important mindfulness would have been for me because I was under so much stress at that time. So I was, I was, oh, forget it. And I, I was in the process of moving from Eastern Connecticut back to New York. And I had to tie up a lot of loose ends, even, you know, you talk about um, adherence with therapy, like getting myself to therapy and much less doing the practice on my own. All of those things were very, very difficult. And kind of like what we were speaking about before, you know, you're go, go, going, but you're not making the time to stop. And I think about in that time, if I had been more deliberate about making time for mindfulness and meditation, how much more present I would have been in the therapy session and how much more deliberate I would have been in my practice, you know? It's a, it's a change in mindset when you start saying, I need to do this for my well-being. Yeah. And so just for that alone, I think mindfulness is important. Plus the fact that we already know that there is an effect on our vagal tone, um, engaging the relaxation response, bringing us down from, you know, that fight or flight type of response um, so that we're more present, we're more aware. And that's why I believe mindfulness is important. And I would think that for people who are um, experiencing a voice disorder that causes stress or might be related to stress, um, it would be hugely important. But as you say, getting the objective data is a little bit harder than the patient reported experience. It's kind of hard. I mean, there are, there is so much research about mindfulness in all kinds of populations, right? I, I don't, I'm not going to do a whole lit review right now, but, you know, people with chronic pain, um, 
any population you can think of, right? right? And how they have change in outcomes. And some of those are just patient reported outcome measure, but just, you know, is not a small thing, right? right. Yes, I can measure heart rate variability or uh, uh, blood pressure. Those things are really important, but also how do you feel and what is going on for you? And I think there's a lot of talk about, or a lot to be thought about and a lot to learn about chronic pain and voice and how these chronic voice disorders are chronic condition and affect us the same way as chronic back pain, right? We, we might think about these as really separate things, but let's think about how it can be just as impactful on someone's life. It's so um, funny because every time I think about the power of patient reported outcomes, I think about LASIK. And there's like tons of um, articles um, in the New York Times about people who are so unhappy with their LASIK surgeries. But if you ask the eyes, eye doctor who did the surgery or whatever, you're like, what are you talking about? This is improved. This is improved. This is improved. And the person is like, but I'm seeing spots or I can't see out of the left side of my eye or something. So the patient's experience of what is happening is just as important as that objective data. And it occurs with any kind of medical intervention or therapy what the patient is experiencing is super important. So if it's not showing in the objective data, but it is in the person's um, experience, that's almost more important. But you know, because of medical billing and insurance, we also have to have that objective data. Um, so you need the whole picture, but. Well, I was gonna say, and I think, you know, we talk about the idea of like the vocal instrument and the things that are measurable over here. And we talk about like the human being and perception over here, but the truth is that they're completely integrated, you know, the, the, because of the physiological responses to thoughts, beliefs, and so on. So I think when it, um, as somebody who, like I'm very transparent about, um, you know, in my history had some issues with performance anxiety, for instance, and um, uh, building the technique was one thing but being able to deliver it under pressure was a completely different thing. And so what happened is it was mindfulness. And, and when I think of mindfulness, there's meditation or prayer, which is part of the story, but there was also, you know, identity re-narration, um, what my beliefs that were operating under the surface and saying, what were the, those beliefs that were actually disempowering that I didn't even realize were there and having to reframe. So mindfulness is this big thing of dealing with who we actually are in the world and how we relate. And my feeling is that, you know, we have this machine within a machine, right? So the vocal machine is here, but it's operated within the human machine. Mm -hmm. And if we can get resonance in the vocal instrument as part of our technique and resonance in the, the psyche, the emotions, the, the way we relate to others. And, and then when we combine those resonances, that's where you have freedom, uh -huh. you know? So, so I think this idea of mindfulness um, is so integrated into voice. So will it fix vocal, like, technical issues that are based in physiology no it won't fix all of those but to it, pretend that it has no effect at all um i that would be a hard sell for me i agree i love the phrase machine within a machine <laughs> awesome it, it it's kind of you know puts into context like you cannot walk around and only care about what is between your chin and your clavicle like all these other things come into play. There's so much here. And um, something that you had said, Geneva, you know, when you're go, 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 you know, it's really hard to switch from go, go, go to, okay, I'm a voice therapy now. And I noticed that 
Well, I'll say I'm, I have a little bit of a skewed perspective because I, like I said, I only was a few months into my fellowship when COVID hit. Um, so the majority of the voice therapy I've ever provided has been virtual and through um, video telepractice, but it is so hard to have patients go, go, go. They're on their computer and literally all they're doing is opening a new web browser that has my face on it and then be like, okay, can you be present with me in this moment, right? They don't have the whole, like, I'm getting in the car, I'm driving, I'm paying, I'm going to walk up or you kind of mentally prepare yourself. Yes. There's other like stressors of what, where's my car parked and all these other things, but you at least have this process of like, I know I'm heading into an experience. I know I'm heading into something with this purpose where sometimes I feel like I'm on someone's screen and they're like, who are you and why are you bothering me? And I'm like, wait, wait, we're here for you and your voice. And I find that that those are the moments where I find a way to like have some kind of mindfulness practice or really encourage it. Or if I feel like we're so off the rails and it's like, like the example I gave before, if someone's just like, Ooh, 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 I did it. And you're like, okay, wait, let's stop for a second. I want to just take a, like, what, what is going on? Where are you? There's no right or wrong answer, but we just, I, I want to make sure that we're present here in this moment together. Um, and it's really, really helpful for something like that. Yeah. And I just think about, um, for me, what has made a big difference is the front loading of those kind of mindfulness tasks is, you know, starting the day with it before your go, go, go. And then schedule times during the day, just like you might schedule times throughout the day for SOVTs, when you're doing your raspberries and your lip trills and things. Schedule some time to just take two minutes of deep breathing throughout the day because you can be so into that go, go, go. You don't realize stress and tension is piling up until maybe you snap off someone's head. You know, it's like you need to like schedule those times during the day, same way you would to do your your voice care front loaded at the beginning of the day. So you go into the day in that right headspace because if you're not being deliberate and um, methodical about your mindfulness and your voice voice care throughout the day, it gets harder to, to see any kind of gains. Yeah, yeah it's like how, how mm -hmm. can stress and contraction, like, cause that's what happens in the body, right? Like, so how can stress and yes. contraction, like, how would that, where's a world where that would lead to freedom, right? Where that would lead to higher function, right? Yeah. So, right. so I think that the, these ideas of, I mean, it needs to be studied more, but um, at least in anecdotal experience, seeing how it makes us present and it also primes us to be open to learning. Right. Because when we're in that go, 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 we're kind of closed off to discoveries that we could be making. We just didn't know we could be, could make them because, we're, we're like, uh, one of my, one of my colleagues says like, we're, we're focused on the cobweb in the corner, but there's a flood on the floor to notice, you know? And so it really primes us to be aware and, and to learn and to make those discoveries we didn't know we could have. Right. So, yeah, I agree. There's so much more to learn. I think it's, it's kind of like a, I don't want to say no brainer, but it's kind of like, of course people have some kind of, you know, not for everybody, not everybody's open to it. I'm, I'm kind of like thoughtful in who I approach the subject with, which patients do. And I usually prime it with like a, I don't know, I, it seems really far-fetched for me, but maybe you'd be open to this. And I always say, you know, mindfulness is not religious. It's just about 
being present and having an awareness in this moment of what is going on. Because I think people have like all these thoughts about it. it seems really scary the same the same way I thought it, of it. So I agree. I think we all have these anecdotal experiences. I think just the way when we talk about it to people, especially when recommending it to students, to patients, being specific about what those benefits would be is really important, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea of saying like, if you are have a mindfulness practice, you're going to be so good on this audition because your voice is going to sound better than ever. Well, no, I'd probably reframe that a little bit differently. And I love that. And I love that being a part of the conversation. If I could, like in a perfect world, I would love to do a full study with like mindfulness and therapy versus non and like really look at how this would affect us. There are some people who are doing, um, you know, I've been speaking to someone who's doing a really cool study that's got really awesome elements of it. I think it's just hard to find uh, a clinic that or a space that has all the resources that you need and all the time and that full patient population to do what we want to do, which such as clinical voice research, you know, that's always the same old song, but I think it would be really exciting and really interesting to dive further into this. Nice. I'll just talk a little bit briefly about what a laryngoresponder is. Um, It's a term that's never really been operationally defined, but we use it to describe individuals who would self-identify or recognize that their body's response to stress manifests in their throat or manifests as a change in breathing, swallowing, voicing. So I usually ask people when you get really stressed out or you're really nervous that you have a test coming up or you have to have a difficult conversation with someone or whatever, I might give an example. Does your body have a habitual response to that? For some people, they might get a stomach ache. They might get a headache. Um, Other people might notice that they get kind of a throat, a tight jaw or or kind of hold their breath a little bit. Um, And so we were looking at ways to ask people that to identify that within, in in that paper, we were looking at vocally healthy population, but um, that's sort of how we describe a laryngoresponder. We were looking to see if there was a relationship between those who self-identify as a laryngoresponder and their past experiences specifically around trauma. And if their experience of trauma or how they felt that they could communicate with others both or, or communicate with themselves, how the, the, their internal or external voice, um, what access they had to that during that trauma, if that changed, whether they or, or could predetermine or, or put them down the path of becoming a laryngoresponder or not. So that's really what that paper looked at. It was super exploratory, um, but kind of exciting and, and, and planted lots of little seeds of other, other things to look into. If stress is felt right there in the throat or in the jaw, like up in this area, what is the, their recourse, do you think? I think that awareness and just being able to identify that is major. And so it is not uncommon. Um, if we think about it, let's just go with the theory that Lorenga responder, when they get stressed, they get a lot of tightness in their throat. Sometimes maybe they'll like hold their breath or maybe they're like holding a lot of tension there. So let's put them maybe in possible pre predisposed to like a functional voice disorder or muscle tension dysphonia. If we can, I spend, say, you know, I do an evaluation with them. We're looking at what they can do with their voice. And I go, well, you haven't taken a, you just 
spoke forever without taking a breath? Or do you ever notice that you're holding your breath? Does anyone at home ever say that you sigh when you're stressed out and all these different behaviors? And then they'll be like, yeah, when I'm stressed out, I get really tight here. And then my voice gets like this and this goes like this. And then I'll say, okay, let's find a way to relax that tension. So then just an awareness. And then they can, maybe they'll say like, you know what? My voice does get worse every time I'm have to call so-and-so who makes me nervous. And so I think just like, um, an awareness of how our body reacts, right? It's the three of us are really used to thinking about what our voice feels like, what our throat feels, what our body feels like. A lot of people don't ever really think about that and that's okay. But, but they they'll show up and say, my throat hurts, my throat hurts. And, and let's look at what other relationship does that have to your life? Okay, so thank you for sharing with us about your research and your journey. In our last segment, um, Agentic Practices, we like to look at things that um, our guests would recommend as great strategies for um, empowering people who might be going through uh, stress or have a history of trauma or things that might um, in, improve your vocal freedom. So. Uh, we did speak a lot about mindfulness today, so I don't know if you want to endorse that as your agentic practice or something else. Can you think of something that you really like to do uh, with patients or recommend or even for yourself? Well, I, I think, yes, totally mindfulness. It seems kind of like the easy answer here or the most clear answer here. But the other thing that I would say is... Um, singing or, or using your voice, whatever it is that you do with your voice with the only goal of what, what you enjoy. Like, so if that is that you need to sing something that's not in your audition book, or, you know, you, something that is not only goal oriented, but something that represents you or something that feels like you or something that just feels good. Like I have songs that I sing all the time because they just feel good and I would never sing them in front of any person ever. But I think finding that freedom, finding that inspiration, finding that joy with your voice um, can almost do more, like has greater in store for you than like following your therapy protocol or this or that. We should sing because it comes from somewhere within or use your voice, not just to be technically right, but to enjoy it and to be inspired by it. Nice. In this episode, we discussed Diana Rose Becker's journey from vocal performance to clinical practice and research. She also shared about her research on Laringo Responders, and her research on mindfulness, meditation, and voice. If you enjoyed this episode of the Agentic Voice podcast, please show your support by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and to our YouTube channel. Until next time, take care.